On today's episode, we're going to be talking about how a balloon filled with helium could help you get out of cardiogenic shock. Hey guys, what's up? This is Sean from the Nurse Dose podcast. I am a CVICU nurse going on six years now. And today we're going to be talking about one of the weirdest things in cardiac medicine, probably even critical care medicine altogether. And that is the balloon pump. But uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to touch on a few things. Um, along with this episode, I've also released a cheat sheet for the balloon pump. So if you are a new grad who's going into a unit that does take balloon pumps, or you are somebody who's about to start taking balloon pumps, or you don't take balloon pumps that often, and you need a refresher, I have released a cheat sheet. It is on Etsy and you can download it straight from there um, and have it with you. And um, yeah, it's got everything that I'm gonna be talking about on this podcast and maybe a little bit more. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, the link will be in the show notes. Um, but yeah, let's get right into it. Um, so the balloon pump for me was kind of like an initiation um, event uh, for my specific ICU that I started out in. And it was very intimidating to me. And it, it is still very intimidating to a lot of new people, a lot of new grads. Um, the ICU I was in wasn't cardiac specific, but we just took balloon pumps every now and then. It was very infrequent. And um, they only trusted certain people to take these balloon pumps because it was so infrequent that only the people that really knew how to do it would take it because there is no use in teaching people how to take something that we barely ever see. So um, that's kind of my initiation into it. it. It was this very intimidating thing. It was just crazy to think that there is this machine that is inflating and deflating a balloon inside of this person's aorta. Um, I was just scared that things were going to explode, things were going to bleed. Um, it's all very intimidating until you sit down and you learn exactly what it does. So what does it do? The balloon pump is a machine that is connected to a line. And this line is inserted through the femoral artery, um, usually in the cath lab. And it is placed in the descending aorta. And that's a, the placement is going to be a huge factor, which is something that we will get to later. And this bedside machine, which is, you know, actually pretty tall um, and pretty, you know, substantial for what it does. It's basically just an air pump with a computer on top of it. So what this machine does is it will inflate and deflate this balloon that is actually filled with helium um, in order to uh, create some counter um, pulsatility. And what this means is basically during systole, the balloon pump is going to deflate causing a vacuum almost where it was taking up space in the aorta. Now this will allow the heart to eject that blood more efficiently um, from the left ventricle and then cause a decrease in the volume in that left ventricle, which then will ultimately lead to a lower left ventricular in diastolic pressure or the pressure after systole in that left ventricle. Um, this is very important because we're gonna start talking about um, coronary perfusion pressure. And this is the pressure that is being exerted into the coronary arteries in order to perfuse it. Um, 
and that that is basically what the balloon pump works on. Uh, it, it uses two principles to increase that CPP in order to perfuse those coronaries as efficiently as possible. And this is usually used as a bridge um, to either do some kind of cath lab procedure like stents or a bridge to uh, cabbage or even just to medically manage the patient um, and see if they get better on their own and get out of the shock by their by, by themselves. Um, so we talked about left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Now, the other thing that the balloon pump does is it increases your aortic diastolic pressure. And what this does uh, and how it does it is the balloon pump will inflate during diastole. Right when diastole starts on that dichrotic notch, the balloon will inflate and in essence push blood back to the aortic valve into the ostium at which the coronary arteries are um, originating and push that blood down into the arteries, increasing perfusion. And so just to recap, because I know this is a lot, basically what we are trying to do with the balloon pump is increase coronary perfusion pressure. And the formula for that is the aortic diastolic pressure minus the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And the reason, the reason why left ventricular end diastolic pressure is important when it comes to coronary perfusion is if you think of, if you think of the heart like a water balloon, the more water, the more blood you put into it, the more pressure it's going to exert on those walls. And that is where the coronary sits. So the more pressure you're exerting on the walls, the more pressure you're going to be exerting on the coronaries and the more pressure it's going to take to get anything into those coronaries because of the pressure on the walls. So that's why that makes a big deal. Now the aortic diastolic pressure, that's important because the coronary arteries are actually perfused during diastole because they sit right next to that um, aortic valve. And whenever blood comes back during diastole to hit that valve, which can be seen on um, your waveforms, your A-line waveforms as the dichrotic notch, that is when they get perfused because then it hits the, the valve and then goes into the ostium into the um, arteries. So basically during diastole, the pump will inflate the balloon causing that blood to be pushed back hit the aortic valve, go into the, the coronaries, and during systole, it will deflate, causing a vacuum where that balloon occupied space in the aorta before, decreasing afterload, allowing for the heart to eject as much blood that it can, and then decreasing the volume and thus the pressure of the heart uh, during diastole for that left ventricular in diastolic pressure. So I hope that makes sense. Um, it's really hard to kind of make it any simpler than that. Um, basically, the way I learned it is that the pump is just pushing blood into the coronaries. Um, and that is the essence of what it is doing. Now, let's talk a little bit about the hardware that you will see whenever you get a patient with a balloon pump. So, of course, you won't see the balloon inflating and deflating. That's going to be inside the patient's body. Um, but what you will see is this big unit um, that is usually on wheels. It's usually a bit taller than the bed is, and it's got like a little laptop on top. And that laptop has a monitor on it as well, which will be showing you a um, arterial waveform where 
the balloon is placed. So in the aorta, and it'll be showing you a EKG usually, hopefully. Um, and then it'll be showing you the waveform of the actual balloon, the pressure in the balloon, which is important. And we'll get to that later. Um, so you'll have this big machine and then usually in the bottom, you will have a helium tank. Now this helium tank, it's actually really interesting. So why do we use helium and not like just oxygen, you know, anything like that, or just plain air? Why don't we just blow it up with plain air from, you know, the room? And the reason for that is helium is such a low molecular weight that it allows for the balloon to be inflated and deflated super quickly. Um, so this is really important whenever you have a patient who has a really fast heart rate because it's it's trying to keep up with this heart rate. And if you have a gas that is um, a higher weight, it's going to be a lot harder to keep up with that because it's going to be harder to move those air molecules, those oxygen molecules as fast as um, it would require to inflate and deflate. So that is why we use helium. And you really need to keep an eye on this because um, if your helium depletes, then your uh, balloon pump will not work anymore. So usually a lot of these balloon pumps, whenever an alarm goes off, that usually means you have 24 to 48 hours to change out the helium. So if you are taking care of a balloon pump patient, you need to know where your helium tank is, where your replacement is, and how much you've got left. Um, a lot of these machines will even have a gauge on the monitor that shows you how much helium is left. Okay, so before we get into the nitty gritty with timing and all of that, let's talk about the correct placement of the balloon pump. Now, usually you will not have to worry about this. This is usually um, done in the cath lab and confirmed in the cath lab but it is something that you wanna keep an eye on to make sure that there is no migration happening. And now why would migration be a big issue? Well, let's talk about where the balloon pump is supposed to sit first. So I think I kind of hinted towards it, but the balloon pump should terminate um, almost right when the aorta starts to turn. So it should be in the descending aorta um, right before there is that turn, uh, that route that goes down into the heart. Um, this is important because it stays away from the left subclavian artery. Now, let's say that the balloon pump migrates up and then occludes that left subclavian artery. What kind of uh, symptoms or signs would you see? You'd see some signs of limit ischemia in that left hand. Um, because you know that is the artery that is supplying blood to that left arm. Um, you'll get diminished pulses or you might have a complete occlusion of the pulses and they might be absent. Um, you'll see some modeling, uh, some you know uh, color change in that left hand, that left arm. So that is why it is very important to keep an eye on the placement of that. Now let's say that it migrates down. Uh, what can then happen? So if the balloon migrates down, it can start occluding the renal arteries. And what do you think that'll do? It'll cause the patient to stop producing urine. So this is why it's really important to not only check the radial pulses, um, check pulses in the feet, all that jazz, but you also have to monitor urine output very strictly. Um, it's going to be at least every hour you need to monitor that urine output. 
Now I said that it needs to be in that descending aorta, like right before the aorta starts to twist around and go to the heart. But what's an easy way for you to see that in an x-ray? What's a good landmark? So there is a little tip, the tip of it, of the balloon, is radio opaque. So you can see it on an x-ray, it'll shine um, white on there, kind of like the tips of central lines and stuff like that. Um, and so that tip should be in the second intercostal space of a chest x-ray. So anytime you get a chest x-ray, you want to see where it is and then make sure it is along those lines in that area. Okay, so now that we've confirmed that the balloon is in the right place, we know the landmarks to look for, um, let's talk about triggering. And there are three different ways to trigger a balloon pump. The main way is going to be your ECG, your electrocardiogram. And what it will do is it'll look for specific landmarks in the EKG, the ECG, to base the inflation and deflation off. So the proper point of inflation is going to be approximately with the T wave. So that's going to be during diastole, um, and that kind of coincides with where the dichrotic notch is, where in the middle of your T wave. Now the proper deflation is going to happen at the end of diastole, which is going to correlate with the peak of the R wave. So that spike that you have in your QRS um, is going to be where we deflate because that electrical impulse that we see with the spike is going to be producing systole. So we want to make sure that the balloon is deflated by then. So that is why it's so important that these timings are done so well. Um, so that's the, the EKG trigger. Another trigger that you can use is the pressure trigger. And so this uses the arterial waveform uh, to trigger the balloon pump. Uh, inflation is triggered at the dichrotic notch. Um, so this is basically used whenever the ECG trigger cannot be used because the ECG trigger is always the most accurate. Um, there's, there's always things that can mess up with the pressure, but there's always things that can mess up with the ECG as well. But the preferred is ECG, but if that doesn't work, then going to pressure trigger, um, is something that will work as well. Um, so it basically will be looking at the arterial waveform that uh, is generated in the, or in the aorta in order to determine when to inflate and when to deflate. And the final one that you will probably never use um, unless you are a CVOR person um, is the internal trigger. So this is an asynchronous mode. Um, it doesn't look at anything going on. It doesn't look at the ECG. It doesn't look at the pressure. And it basically just inflates and deflates at a set rate, which is usually set at 80. Um, and why would we use this? So like I said before, this, is, this can be used as a bridge to cabbage, uh, cardiac surgery. Um, so if this is being used, it can be used in an OR um, while the patient is on bypass. Um, it can kind of help uh, with things in that nature uh, while the patient is on bypass preparing for the actual surgery. Um, it can also be used in cardiac arrest, but something that I've realized is that whenever the patient is asystole, the pressure trigger will take over. And uh, when you're doing CPR, it will see the trigger, the pressure that you are creating with your compressions, and it will inflate and deflate with that pressure. So that is why I don't even worry about internal trigger. Of course, you need to listen to the providers, what they want to do. But um, every time I've had a code with a balloon pump, 
it's always automatically gone over to pressure trigger mode by itself. Um, and the way that it does that is there's really two modes of operation that you can do. There's an automatic and a semi-automatic mode of operation. There's also a complete manual um, mode of operation, but we do not use that um, unless the doc wants to come in and do his own timing, but he's going to have to sit at the bedside and do his own timing with the change in the rhythm and heart rate and all that. So it's just something that does not happen. So really the only two modes that you will see are automatic and semi-automatic. So with automatic, basically the computer will pick up the most reliable trigger source, be it ECG or pressure, and then it will set the inflation and deflation time itself. Um, so this is pretty much just autopilot for the balloon pump. You set it on that, the computer figures out what to do. It's pretty much a hands-off uh, scenario. Now with semi-automatic, it's kind of like automatic, but the operator will choose the source and then sets the initial deflation and inflation points. And then uh, the computer will set the subsequent intervals as uh, the treatment goes on. So um, you're basically choosing which source you want to use and the initial inflation and deflation um, times. So that is, a pretty good overview of the modes and the types of triggers. Um, one last thing that I want to touch on is the ratio of augmentation. So this is how often the balloon is going to inflate. So a lot of the time we will see our patients with a one-to-one. -one. So that would mean that with every heartbeat, there is an inflation and deflation. Um, it, it, that is an augmented uh, beats. Every beat is augmented. Uh, so there's also one to two and one to three. So one to two, it would recur occur with every other beat and one to three, it would be with every third beat. So this is a way that uh, cardiologists use to actually wean the patient. So if let's say they start out pretty bad and they're one to one, they need that augmentation with every beat. Um, let's say they get better the next day, they can go down to one to two. And then the next day or you know, a few hours from then even, they get even a little better and they can go to one to three. And this is how the docs will assess and see if the patient still needs this um, help. And um, if it's good enough, they can even assess if they can take out the balloon pump. Okay, so the next things that we are gonna be talking about, you can only observe when the patient isn't fully augmented, you know, one to one. So you can observe these things in one to two or one to three, whenever there is a beat that is not augmented. Um, like I said, in one to two or one to three. So whenever you're looking at a balloon pump waveform, the arterial waveform, you will see, let's say this is one to two. So let's say you see an, an unaugmented beat or um, a beat that the balloon pump does not inflate or deflate on. So you just have a regular beat. And then the next one, you will have an augmented beat in which the balloon pump will inflate on the dichrotic notch causing a diastolic augmentation, meaning that the diastolic pressure then becomes higher for that beat. Um, and then it will deflate at the end of diastole causing a um, decrease in left ventricular in uh, diastolic pressure. So what you will see on the waveform is of course during the diastolic augmentation when the pump inflates, you will see that the wave will go up above the systolic pressure and then when it deflates, you'll see it actually go down below what the inherent diastolic pressure was before. Um, so it, 
I really encourage you to either look up a waveform online or even just look at the balloon pump cheat sheet that I have on Etsy. And it has a really good diagram that shows what I'm talking about. But this is what we are aiming for. This is the goal. And this is how you can see that we are increasing the, a <coughs> the aortic diastolic pressure and decreasing the left, in the left ventricular end diastolic pressure um, by looking at the waveform like this. Now, the reason you won't be able to see that on a one-to-one -one is because you won't be able to see the effects um, of a non-augmented um, beat versus an augmented beat. So this is sometimes if you're trying to assess for it, uh, the doc will actually put it into one to two or one to three to see if that augmentation is occurring correctly. Um, but otherwise you just won't be able to assess it as much as you would if you are in one to two or one to three. Now let's talk about the importance of timing and how precise it needs to be and what can happen if this timing is not correct. So like I've said before, the proper inflation is usually on the dichrotic notch. That is what you're aiming for. That's what the middle of the T, T wave usually correlates with and that's what the balloon pump uses to gauge when to inflate. So let's say they the, the balloon pump inflated a little earlier than that. Well, what could that do? So basically, if you are inflating that balloon pump while the heart is still in systole, it will, of course, cause increased afterload. But what it will ultimately do is close that aortic valve and not allow any more blood to be pumped out. So you are decreasing your stroke volume effectively if the balloon pump is pumping too early. Now, too late, it's just going to be um, less efficient. You won't get as much augmentation of that diastolic pressure and your balloon pump just won't be working as well as it could. Now, in terms of deflation, this one seems kind of obvious. If the balloon does not deflate before systole, then it's going to cause increased afterload. It, the heart's going to be pumping against this balloon in the aorta. Um, and then, of course, it's going to cause a decrease in stroke volume, a decrease in cardiac output. Um, it is just you don't want a huge balloon blocking your aorta whenever your heart's beating, if that makes sense. Now, the correct way to time that deflation, like I've said before, is that peak wave of the R wave or whenever the um, end of diastole is detected. Um, so it's going to be on that down slope that you see on the waveform. Now, speaking of waveforms, we will now talk about the actual balloon waveform. So this is going to be the pressure inside of the balloon. This is not going to be the pressure in the aorta. This is going to be the pressure in the balloon. And this, if you're looking at any kind of diagrams, this is going to be the waveform that kind of looks like a chair, like a high chair almost. You've got an uptick that comes down into a little plateau and then you know, comes down a lot more steeper and then does a little inflection and then comes back up to baseline. So basically what this is showing is the inflation and deflation of the balloon. So your balloon is going to inflate at that first uptick. Um, it's going to kind of overshoot and plateau at the pressure. And that plateau is when it is going to just be open. Um, it's going to be inflated and just sitting there. Um, and then of course it'll deflate kind of overshoot the deflation and come back up to baseline. So that baseline pressure is going to be uh, the pressure that the balloon is experiencing whenever it is not inflating or deflating. It's, it's like it's downtime pressure. And that is very important to kind of look at um, because if that baseline pressure goes down to zero or goes down significantly from the baseline, that could indicate that you have some kind of helium leak 
um, or the balloon has just fully ruptured, which is not a good thing. The balloon will usually alarm, well, it should alarm, and then it'll usually shut itself off if it detects any kind of rupture, um, but it'll notify you if it thinks that there's just a leak. Now, this waveform can actually tell you a lot, and it's uh, something they don't really teach you in these classes. It's kind of just skipped over. It's like, okay, as long as this uh, waveform looks like a chair, you're good. Um, but you can actually tell a lot of different things from it. The first, which doesn't really matter, um, the space between the inflation and deflation, of course, that will increase, that space will increase with bradycardia because the balloon is staying inflated for longer because there is longer amount of times in between um, heartbeats. But during tachycardia, it'll actually decrease and get skinnier, more narrow. Um, there's not, you know, no clinical importance to that. It's just a good thing to know. That's the kind of movement that you will see uh, with the width. Now, when it comes to the top of the waveform, where you have that inflection that comes down to the plateau, if that starts rounding out, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean either your patient is severely hypertensive or that you have a kink in the tubing. So it'd be very good for you to actually look and see if you have any kink in the tubing outside of the patient. But this can also happen if you sit the patient up and it starts kinking um, at that insertion point in the uh, femoral artery. So that is why we don't want to really sit these patients up at all. Um, we have them lie flat. We have their legs usually in a brace to keep them from bending it. Um, if they do need to like sit up or anything, you do reverse Trendelenburg and just still keep them flat. Um, the whole body should be in line. There are some places that say you can do it up to 30 degrees, but I just don't even want to mess with it, to be honest. Okay, so now that we've gotten uh, both of the waveforms out of the way, I want to talk about the main number uh, that we will be looking at, looking at um, alongside the map, of course. We always look at the map as CVICU nurses. Um, the main thing you want to look at is your augmentation. And so this is going to be your diastolic augmentation after the balloon inflates on that dichrotic notch. And I kind of think of this as my new systolic. It's, it's going to be the new top number um, of the, you know, of your blood pressure. So if you have another um, A line that's hooked up like in the radial or something like that, this is the number that's going to show um, as the systolic just because it is going to be the new highest number. It's still during diastole, but it's going to be the highest pressure, if that makes sense. It's really weird to think about, um, but in my mind, it just makes sense that, oh, okay, this is my new systolic. This is the new pressure that is actually pushing uh, blood back into the coronaries and kind of creating this pulsatile push forward as well with the inflation. Um, so there is usually on your console, you'll have like an augmentation button um, that you can go up and down with your augmentation. It's usually set by the doctor, but you, uh, whenever you come on and you see what the diastolic or the, yeah, what your diastolic augmentation is, you want to make sure that your diastolic or your augmentation alarm is set for 10 below that. So if your alarm starts going off, you know that your augmentation has started to go down. And usually when your augmentation is going down, that either means that your patient is going septic and going into some kind of shock or they need um, some kind of vasopressor support or their uh, stroke volume has gone down and they need an increase in that. However, the doctor decides to uh, deal with that. So uh, your augmentation is 
basically what you're going to be looking at a lot alongside your blood pressure and your map uh, to, to determine if you need any drips or if you need to titrate your drips um, or if you need any treatment other than that. So that is why it's very important that you keep your augmentation alarm on. You make sure that it is set for 10 below what your baseline um, diastolic augmentation is when you come on. Um, and you want to make sure that it doesn't get to a five um, above your systolic because that is just not enough augmentation. Um, so I hope that makes sense. I know it's very convoluted, but basically augmentation is what you're looking at along with your map and what you're going to be titrating your pressors to usually. Now it'll be different from provider to provider on uh, whether they want to treat it with vasopressors or any other things, but for the most part, that's what they do. Now, um, if you're ever told to change the augmentation, there is a button um, on the console where you can go up and down on your augmentation, um, but you just need to be careful with that because if you augment too much, you can be putting um, unneeded stress on the aorta and you do not want to cause a, um, an aneurysm. That would be very bad. Now that is pretty much the gist of balloon pumps and the triggering and everything. Um, before we stop this episode, I just wanted to go over a couple of miscellaneous things. Um, we've already talked about the augmentation alarm and it should be set for 10 millimeters of mercury below what your um, baseline augmented diastolic pressure is. But also, so this line is almost like an A line that goes into the aorta. So you are actually transducing a, um, a blood pressure from it. So you, in, in essence, have an A line with a, um, with a flush bag and everything. But um, you are never going to want to you know, power flush or draw from that arterial line because there is a chance that it could be clogged. Um, and then you won't have that pressure back up. Um, if the ECG fails. So um, that's why you should never do that. If you absolutely have to, you can get a provider order to do so, but just make sure that you have that order and that it has been communicated that you're using that line for blood draws. Um, and you should never be pushing any medications through it. Um, it's just like an A-line. So you got to treat it the same way. Um, so with patients that have a pacer, uh, they can usually still use the ECG trigger um, because you're still producing some sort of R wave. You know, you're still getting that QRS. It's just uh, usually it is uh, brought on by the pacer. So usually you can still use it in the ECG mode, but there's always that pressure back up if you, if you need it. Um, the same goes for AFib. Um, I've had a lot of questions from people in the past, like do we still use the EKG trigger for patients in AFib? And yes, because you will still have that QRS, um, but if it gets to a point where it's hard to read the QRS, then there's always, like everything else, there's always that pressure trigger. Um, so this was just a very, um, basic overview of the balloon pump to let you know what it is, um, how it works, uh, the little uh, quirks of it, and why timing is so important, why triggering is so important. We've talked about how we wean it usually using um, the ratio of augmentation from one to one to one to two to one to three. Um, and we've kind of gone over the different waveforms and what they look like. Now, 
like I said before, if you are wanting to see, have a visual on it, I recommend um, going to my Etsy and looking at that cheat sheet. It's something I wish I had whenever I started out. Um, just having this visual reference would really help somebody taking a balloon pump. Um, other than that, you can look up um, balloon pump waveforms and there are so many examples online so that you can go back and kind of follow through with those. Um, other than that, I think that's all I have for you. Uh, just make sure you monitor your pedal pulses, your radial pulses, your urine output, monitor for bleeding, monitor for uh, hematomas, monitor for retroperitoneal bleeds. If you're turning these patients, you wanna log roll, keep them as straight as possible. You don't wanna sit them up at all. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, like I said, if y'all have any questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram at nursedoseofficial and I will do my best to answer. Um, I have my phone on me always, so if you ever message me, I get back to you almost immediately. Um, but yeah, if y'all had gotten anything out of this, I would really appreciate a five-star rating on either Spotify or iTunes. It's what really helps the podcast get noticed. Um, but other than that, I will talk to y'all in the next one. Bye.